You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Hello and welcome. This is Chris here. I have for you today a recorded conversation with Chris Kerr, investment manager at New Crop Capital. New Crop Capital is an innovative private venture fund focused on investing in businesses which are disrupting the food industry. This is an industry which hasn't really experienced an enormous amount of disruption since the Industrial Revolution. And I was really keen to find out a little bit more about what is actually taking place in this industry. I do hope you enjoy it. Perhaps we start with what New Crop Capital is or um, what it does. Sure. So New Crop Capital is an investment trust, and it's it's set up uh, specifically to make investments in the food space um, in areas that we feel need that can solve some problems. So in our case, you know, we're looking at uh, food scarcity. Uh, we're looking at trying to feed a population of, of that is burgeoning. You know, by the year 2050, at nine billion people, and so we're trying to look. Uh, quite frankly, quite far into the future and figure out what we can do to alleviate the food system and some of the struggles we, we see it facing. And so that includes things like uh, getting nutrients to populations, but also climate change, um, how we treat animals. We feel like that model is, is a flawed model and it needs to be addressed um, and, and kind of looking at some of the bigger problems around food. And, you know, I would say that, you know, we don't have a lot of money to work with, but we're dealing with early and seed stage companies that are highly, highly innovative uh, with the idea that if one or two of these companies um, can make a a major difference on on how the world moves forward into the future, uh, we're hoping that we can play a role in that. And and so we're we're investing in companies that, quite frank, frankly, a lot of invest uh, uh, venture investors uh, might be afraid to do. And we're hoping that by leading by example, uh, that others will come into this space as well. So why is it that others are fearful of this space, Chris? What what's your perception of that? Well, so I'll, I'll use cultured meat as an example. We actually see cultured meat being just you know meat is a is a trillion dollar annual industry and it's you know some people might say that the meat industry is 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 broken but in fact we we feel it's actually quite efficient to a large degree but it's the wrong it's the wrong machine that that we've banked on and we feel like you know using um animals as the median uh, uh, medium to get nutrients and protein into our systems is 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 failed and so the problem is that cultured meat has a long way to go before it will see uh, uh, an exit. And so if you look at a traditional venture capital fund, they tend to have a lifespan of you know anywhere from 10, 12, 10 to 14 years uh, where we don't have that. Right? We don't have any particular end dates that we need to be investing, investing towards. So if you're a traditional venture capital fund where you need to be able to harvest an investment um, within, the, within the vintage, within the life cycle of that venture fund – Anything that's going to bump up to the outer edge of that would would pose an additional risk to an already risky investment sector. And so we're leading into um, companies that otherwise don't really attract capital in that space. Does that make sense? It does. So one of the, I mean, what I know one of the things that you're fairly heavily focused on is the non-meat 
and non-dairy sectors mm-hmm. is that is that predominantly around the you know the very real fact that uh, the the amount of land for example the amount of inputs that are required to raise um, a head mm-hmm. of cattle are in order of magnitude yep. higher than that which could raise plant-based foods a hundred percent it's you know it the inputs don't reconcile with the outputs and you know i'm I, you know if, if i'm trying to think of a good analogy but if you know if i if i told you that um i got this great machine that will produce a gallon of gas but it takes 15 gallons of oil to make it you would tell me that's a terrible machine and that's kind of what we have with you know traditional agribusiness today is that there's so many inputs and you're you're ending up with with an output that's pretty straightforward it's some nutrients and some protein but there's a whole bunch of out, uh, outputs that aren't accounted for um, that are just creating a really inefficient model in the grand scheme of things and nobody's really banking on or or, or accounting for some of those byproducts and i think that that's really problematic for us you know and it, even if all we looked at was the methane gas that beef the the beef population produces that in and of itself would be enough to say we should turn our heads somewhere else um literally and figuratively and i you know i think that you know that is trying to reconcile those two things that's where we realize that this model is broken that we really need to start we need to start looking at a at a different platform to be working from and so in our case we look at cultured meats as one solution but that's but there's a lot of science that needs still needs to, to be developed there and so in the medium uh term we're looking towards um plant-based um analogs that can also um answer some of those problems so if you look at the rise the recent rise of uh plant-based milks as an example right now plant-based milk represents 8% of the the dairy industry and that's a rather massive um portion of that industry given that it really it really found its rise in the last 10 years um if you were to do the look at the same ratio for plant-based meats we represent uh 0.2% of of the meat industry as an analog. And so if we could even make up a little bit of that ground it would have just a, a massive massive um uh implications to not just the environment uh but to animals as well. Okay, so the particular companies that you're investing in, can you give me some insights into what they typically are doing? Is it is it very technologically driven? Is it um you know what? What is it that you're yes. looking for in companies, and what are the, what are yes. some of the? Yeah, so we we definitely look for innovative innovative IP. Um, certainly, we want something that's differentiated in the marketplace. And so, you know, as an early stage investor, you kind of have to. Um, you either need to be a first mover, or you better have some some something novel, something that's you know their value added proposition. Um, so in our case, we look at with IP, uh, particularly in the cultured meat space. I, IP is king. Now, the, 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 what's interesting about cultured meat is that there's not just one, there's not one discovery that's going to solve everything. You know, you might have um, one company might be developing a serum, uh, where another one might be what develops the what's called the scaffolding for de- for developing kind of the depth of meat, if you will. Um, another might be microfluidics and as far as getting nutrients to the cells. So there's lots of different technologies that can be developed and we don't actually see one company uh, being 
we don't see it as being just one company that, that comes up with all of these solutions. So that's the one part of it. And then, and then the other is, you know, if you can be a first mover and move very quickly into a space, for instance, if you, uh, we have a company right now that we're looking at that has, uh, developed a, a new type of plant-based shrimp. Well, you know, the largest by pounds, the, by, by volume, the largest seafood product in the world is shrimp. Uh, and there isn't a really good plant-based alternative out there. Um, and, and that has implications for human, tra- human trafficking, human uh, slavery issues. It has implications for the environment, for pollution. Uh, and yet nobody's really looking at that space. So being a first mover uh, in that space is relevant to us as well. But we want something that's innovative that can be protected as best as possible. And so, you know, clearly IP is, is a big part of the due diligence that we look at. Right. Did that and answer your whole question? Yes. No. Um, it's interesting because I've been um, looking at a number of things within things like additive printing, for example, um, some of the work that's mm-hmm. been coming out of some of the universities, MIT, um, that's actually uh, in the plant-based um, food space. It's quite. It's been quite amazing to me because it's not something that I'd actually been covering at all. Right. I. I. You know. I hadn't. I didn't even know it existed. To be quite frank with you, I knew that there was alternatives yeah. that were being um, uh, built, and you know, I had. I had some insights, but I didn't. I didn't at all have any insights into the depth of work that has actually been going into this space and um, mm-hmm. it's um, it, it is fairly revolutionary when when extrapolated out you made the comment earlier on with respect to the dairy industry and um, uh, plant-based milk and that growth that's mm-hmm. taken place over the last 10 years and you have this essentially this asymmetric payoff with respect to bringing on just another one percent or two percent of what is such an right. enormous um, marketplace, yeah. of course, this is we're talking yeah. about you know the population of the world and how they um, yeah. and how they feed themselves. And well, um, that's that's exactly right. I mean, you look at disrupting the taxi business, and you've and you got Uber, and that's a that's just a tiny fraction of what the food world is, right? Nutrient, trying to get nutrients to human beings is just a massive, you know, massive undertaking. And a a small uh, pip here and there is, is even in and of itself, a a remarkable opportunity. Uh, And so we're looking at all of those things, hoping that, you know, several of them actually can make a real dent in the problems that we're facing in the future. So do you think that this is something um, that is m- more affecting, say, the developed world or the developing world. I I would imagine that it could have a greater impact on the developing world, simply with respect to the cost of um, nutrients. Because again, you go back to the meat and dairy industry, yeah. and these are high cost input, high capital, in, highly capital intensive businesses. And in in market environments where they tend to be capital starved, where they tend to be um, inefficient regulations and, and the likes, um, then you you know you find populations which are quite frankly starving. And so I yeah. suspect that the impacts in developing world could be would, would be greater than that in the developed world. Is that how you see things? Uh, absolutely, and part of it's about impacting what's here today, such as uh, you know cold storage in India, right? That that just trying to get um, 
meat proteins into a, 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 a nation that doesn't have cold storage is already a problem. Uh, and, and so if you can replace that with a really good, clean plant protein uh, that is ambient and can be shipped anywhere in a powder form, you know, that that's that's good for starving populations for sure. Uh, if you look at, at China, you've got just a massive um, increase uh, growth trajectory in pork production. And the infrastructure to support that um, is already problematic. You know, the investment that it takes just to support the pork industry, which we already know is a highly inefficient model, wouldn't it be nice to stop that growth trajectory before it gets along too, gets too far along? Uh, there are certainly some cultures uh, that are just going to be heavily um, reliant on meat consumption. And, and, you know, some of those, you know, they're going to be very slow to change. But those that are looking to change now, we like to have some innovative products and um, uh, availabilities of, of, of these products uh, before things get too far out of hand. And so that's what we're kind of focusing on now is bringing some of the technology that already exists to third world countries um, and at price points that make sense, you know, and then, and then the other is just to, you know, develop what we can. And so we're actually looking, we're all going all over the globe, looking for innovative companies and trying to basically get them, you know, distribution throughout the world. And so that's, that's, it's a big undertaking, you know, for such a small group, it's a, it's a rather sizable undertaking. Uh, the good news is there's a few people in our syndicate that all have, um, a similar, outlook on the world. And so we're kind of joining forces uh, with that. It's not just new crop capital. We've got other people in our syndicate that are helping helping with the cause and paying attention. And so that brings me to something that you just, you were mentioning now with respect to India, for example. Are there any particular countries which are more advanced than others um, with respect to, um, I guess, the why? And understanding that we do have an issue it it needs resolving. Doing the same thing that has been yeah. done for the last hundred or years is not the answer. Are there any particular? Yeah. I mean, I, I would suspect that the universities are um, probably ground ground zero for this type of stuff. But what does that play? What does that playing field look like across the globe? Well, you know, philosophically, I think that uh, a lot of countries in the EU, certainly Germany and Holland, they're they're way ahead. Uh, the U.S. less so. But a lot of innovation and in, in capital is coming out of the U.S., so it's a, it's a good breeding ground there. But you've got companies like, you know, we made this investment in, in, in SunFed down in, in Auckland, um, and the government there is very, very supportive of this. You know, it's the fact that they're willing to back an innovative company like this that, you know, clearly has had something to address um, when it comes to things like climate change and the environment. Uh, that's telling. You know, the U.S. doesn't provide a whole lot of subsidies for innovative companies uh, in the plant-based world because they're so reliant on meat and dairy as, as a staple um, in their diet. And, you know, to have any company kind of – any country kind of rise up and say, look, we need a better solution for the long term, uh, you know, I think that's telling. Um, and so, you know, certainly, like I said, uh, Europe is, Israel is, India is, is – was, you know, already – heading this direction, but they also have some other issues as well. Infrastructure is one of them. Um, but, you know, they, they, I would say that they're philosophically aligned with, with what we're trying to do, but from an infrastructure standpoint, it's probably um, a little bit of a um, difficult. A little bit more difficult, sure. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. Um, it's still very much an emerging market, whereas, yeah. um, you know, Holland, Germany, New Zealand, you're looking at developed yeah. markets. Yeah. Um, really, That's then right. you're, you're looking at a mindset 
that require that is required in order to change. Yeah, but we, you know we run into parity issues, right? So I think you know, I use this example a lot, where you've got, like I said, the plant-based milks are now eight percent of the market. But if you want to compare that on parity to milk, you know it doesn't taste like milk. I'd say it's maybe seventy percent of what milk tastes like. It's it's more expensive. It's not as widely available. And yet it's still performing quite well. And, and it's one of the fastest growing market segments out there. I think in the last probably five or six years, it's been growing at a compound animal, gro- animal growth rate of about 18%, I think it is. So in a market, in a, in a supermarket retail sector, that's just ridiculous growth year over year. How much of this, Chris, is being driven by things like health, where you've got people are understanding that the, you know, the, a lot of the saturated fats and things like that yeah. Um, are problematic. Okay. You've got a lot yep. of allergies and things like that with dairy. I mean, you know, here I sit in New Zealand, this is, you know, we are the dairy capital of the world per yeah. capita basis. Yeah. This place produces, yep. you know, um, we're, we're wallow, so, yeah. wallowing in yeah. this so stuff. The point, so, the point, yeah, yeah, the point I was making was about parity. And I think what, what you just said is exactly it. You know, where milk is not on, on par with plant-based milks, there's clearly other driving factors. I think health is a massive one, um, and it's probably the biggest one, right? And so if you were to look at – one of the reasons dairy is so so successful is because a ridiculous portion of the um, population is actually allergic or at least uh, has a problem with, with dairy. Either they're lactose intolerant or lactase um, uh, intolerant. So I think that health is probably one of the biggest driving factors in developed nations where – Wealth is probably a little higher. They can make that decision. They have the luxury of making that decision. Right. I don't know how that's going to play out in third world countries, to be honest. Underdeveloped nations, I think that you know why they're going to make certain choices are probably going to be around. Um, you know, are they being fed or not? And in our case, our hope is that if if we can reach parity on price and get darn close to taste and texture, and if we can reach parity on distribution. Then I think the, the will win, right? I think that people will they'll choose the the more environmentally, uh, av- more environmentally sensitive offerings. They'll they'll choose products that are better for animals. They'll choose the more humane option. But you really have to hit that price parity, and I and I think that that's going to be the tough thing for this entire business investment thesis is can we hit parity with price? So and, what does that you know, look the problem like? in the U.S. is. Sorry, I was just thinking with respect to dairy. Sorry, cut in, Chris. You, you mentioned ten years yep. ago. Um, it's really sort of like probably like a ten, fifteen year old industry is the yep. replacement of dairy. So, has that been a, a cost decline in that particular um, industry? In other words, has is it, been it, a, is what? it a cost decline um, for uh, yeah. plant-based yeah. milk? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. you know, ten years and, ago, and, you know, keep in mind that. Yeah, I mean, most of non-dairy milks are water, right? I think it's something like, I don't know what it is, like 96% of plant-based milk content is water. So it's 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 a couple of nuts ground up in it and with a little bit of flavoring and you've got almond milk. And so I think that they can probably come darn close to price parity with regular milk. Uh, right now, there's, there's, there's probably a bit of gouging going on because it's it's positioned as a premium product. Uh, but I think that price is going to come down. I, I, you know, I just have to, I have to believe that it will. If you start looking at, and, and I think the issue that we have, and I can't speak to other countries, but the United States subsidizes their dairy industry so highly that, you know, if they were to offer the same 
subsidies for broccoli, we'd have a much, much healthier nation. But in, in, instead, we're backing industries that, quite frankly, are, are counterintuitive to what's in our best interest. You know, meat being one of them and, and dairy being the other. Sugar, also another one that's the yeah, highly I mean, subsidized. Yeah, yeah, the sugar industries, are, yeah. it just blows my mind. But then again, I mean, yeah. you've got... Uh, it's nonsensical. Got, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you've a lot of what the government does is not... Is nonsensical, so we won't go down that <laughs> That's road. <right. laughs> um, That's right. And certainly, there's vested interests at play. Yes, and um, yep. we can't. Right. We have to be cognizant of that fact. The That's right. But certainly, where you do have technology helping and assisting in those cost reductions, you know, we've seen this. You know, you mentioned Uber early on. You have this exponential cost decline, which once you reach parity, you know, is that the tipping point? Maybe it's not. Maybe the tipping point is a little bit post that. But if you're if yeah. if that is the trend in motion, it's certainly one that's very from an investment perspective, it is very interesting. It it provides you with that asymmetry yeah. whereby yeah. um once that tipping point does take place, it's game over. Mm-hmm. It's 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 you you're looking at a different world. I mean there, a, a lot of things have to align. Uh you know you got Let's just say innovation gets you to the place where you've got a perfect meat replacer. Let's say it's cultured meat. You still have distribution issues and and you still have price issues, right? And so you've got to get all three of those things to kind of come to market in tandem. And there's, you know, clearly there's ways of entering the market. You want to find your your white spots and your in your um, market entry points. But sooner or later, distribution. One of one thing is going to outpace the other, and you know our hope it's that's just distribution, in which case it's just capital. Can we, can we, you know, fill fill the demand? And so, you know, I think that's kind of what we're we're struggling with with these early stage companies is how do we balance that the need for capital, the growth of the company combined with demand and distribution, and then of course hitting price parity. And, you know, I think, you know, certainly plenty of companies can go to market with a higher end product and bring their price down. You know, that's the easy way to go. At that point, it's an engineering and scaling issue, not an IP issue. And, and we, we try to focus on companies that have at least to some degree have solved the science side of it and the rest being, OK, well, now it's an engineering problem and less a science problem. And, you know, we're we're we face that hurdle a lot easier with uh, plant based analogs than we do with real science breakthroughs uh, where we're, we're, we're messing with cells such as cultured meat or cultured gelatin or, or you know products like that. Right. When you think about the meat industry, let's take the meat industry because it is such a capital intensive industry. It requires, for, for any profitable business, requires huge amounts of land, you know, dependent upon the fertility of the soil and um, so on and so forth. But essentially, it's a very land-intensive, which means it's capital-intensive. It requires yeah. a lot of that engineering side of things that you just mentioned in order for it to function mm-hmm. and, and be profitable. Is there anything that you're seeing within the plant-based space that is much more individual-based? In other words, so if I think about something as um, that, that everybody would be able to understand something like, say, um, aquaponics, which you can grow in your back garden, mm-hmm. right? And and so yep. it's not required to have a massive distribution scale. It's not required to have a massive amount of land. It's not, you know, those inputs, mm-hmm. capital inputs, are significantly reduced. Is there anything that you're looking at which has those sorts of metrics and has the capability to produce and provide to an industry? Well, across the board, all 
forward uh, investments do exactly that. And, you know, you want to talk about disrupting infrastructure, you know, cultured meat, cultured meat does it. I mean, you can, you can take the, the number of cells that go into a small vial that can then feed upwards of 2000 people for a year. That's, that's craziness, but that's basically how cultured cell meat technology works. You know, we got, like I said, we got a long way to go before that science is fully fleshed out, but we're, we're, we're clearly on the right path. So that's, that's the type of thing that would be, you know, people growing their own meat, people growing their own proteins um, right there in, in their kitchen. You know, that's pretty far off before you're doing it individually. But, you know, we're talking about solving a problem for the year 2050. That, that will do it. You can do the same thing with milk. You can do the same thing with gelatin eggs. I mean, we're working on all of those things between Clara Foods with eggs, you got Mufri with milk, you've got Memphis Meats and Mosa Meats doing the, doing the meat endeavors. I think, you know, all of those are, while they're a big undertaking, they are absolute game changers. And, you know, so clearly we're, we're going to be focusing on those. There's, I can't think of a, a single space that has more ability to disrupt uh, for the better our world than, than the cultured uh, meat, dairy, and egg space. It's just, it's just massive. So that, that's, a, that's a big one. And then you've got, you know, more midterm stuff. If you were looking at companies that could produce formulated powders that could then be turned into meat, you know, that's, that is the plant-based meat world right now. And, and that already exists. Um, and so if you were to create micro plants around the world that could take ambient dry formulated powders and turn them into meat that you can eat in burgers and steaks and, and things like that. Um, that's that we're probably less than a decade away from and that that would solve all sorts of problems. And, you know, the nice thing about that is you're not just selling somebody a piece of meat, you're selling somebody a formulated product that could have vitamin A and vitamin B and all sorts of other stuff in it that, um, could really help populations uh, thrive that are right now malnourished. Yeah, I think we can get to that point where you can essentially have customized, personalized nutrition at at that's right. at a cost basis, right. which is significantly lower yep. than that which we have. Because so, the other the other thing, of course, which I'm sure you're very aware of, is that the ostensible cost basis of many of these products that we're picking up off of the supermarket shelves today. Are actually not what they really are. So you you know you mentioned sugar for example. When you go and you buy your bag of sugar, you think oh that's the cost of sugar. It's you know two dollars or whatever it is. But that's not the real cost. Yeah. The real cost is significantly higher because of all of the the incentives and um, uh, so on and so forth that have that are sitting behind that. But and, and then there's a bunch of other costs that you're not even in, incorporating into that, such as your insulin shots and your diabetes and, and yeah, right. you know of course climate change and everything else and. And so there's a bunch of costs that just aren't being included. Now, it's not like we're going to get rid of all of that just because we went to plant-based um, meat and dairy analogs. I mean, you know, some of that stuff will still be there as we're feeding populations, but it's got to be better. It's got to be better. And, you know, I, I just I have to believe that uh, if, you, if you were to look at all of the costs associated with uh, how we eat today, there's a lot of things that just aren't adding up, and we need to start paying more attention to it. And that's what New Crop is focusing on. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate your time, Chris. Look forward to catching sure. up with you in a few weeks. Yeah, I know. How many people are going to be at this event, do you know? 50. But Perfect to me. I was, I was thinking uh, less than 75 would be great. I don't care what it is, but... Uh, I like groups where I can mingle around and meet people. Yeah, no, that's that's that's, that's the way perfect. that we typically run run these things. No, it's 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 always okay. a much more intimate small group that we run. That yeah. you know it allows for 
the participants to have quality time speaking with with other attendees and with right. uh, people like yourself you know that great i'm glad you guys are putting this together i'm so glad that you invited me i'm really looking forward to it likewise well i'll let you be thanks a lot for your time chris okay really appreciate it yeah, if you have any more questions you can email me or i'm happy to hop on a phone and call again fantastic look forward take care chris yep. thank you for tuning in capex big question podcast is sponsored by Seraph, an exclusive private global network of individual investors and family offices dedicated to growing their wealth exponentially by investing in game-changing global trends. To learn more about Seraph, go to seraph.vc. That's S-E-R-A-P-H dot V for Vicky, C for Charlie.